Good morning again and welcome. We are continuing this morning with our study, the book of Romans, and we have uh, been working through this for a number of months. We've arrived at verse 12 of chapter 5, and uh, we'll be doing something a little bit different this morning. Um, This book of the Bible, if you're not familiar with it, is uh, the thesis that we're working with and understanding what's going on in this letter and why Paul wrote it is that this is basically a letter of missionary introduction. And um, Paul, who's been planting churches in the east and working out of a base in Antioch, uh, is wanting to move further west. And in order to do that, he really needs a place that's closer to where he wants to launch from to facilitate that missionary endeavor. And so Paul is basically introducing himself to the Roman church because he didn't plant that church. He knows some of the people there, but he's introducing himself to them. And so this letter really functions kind of like a resume for Paul. And he wants them to see that he can uh, be trusted, that they ought to join with him in this missionary endeavor and support him as a a trustworthy and reliable apostle. And so a big part of this letter, Paul is talking about what he believes, his doctrine, his his core understanding of what God has done through Jesus. And so that's what we've been dealing with in this letter. Um, He starts out with this brief, very brief statement about the gospel in chapter 1, and it's centered on this whole concept of the righteousness of God, of being made right with God by something that God does, not by something that we do. He then spends the next section of the letter expanding on why it is that we need a righteousness from God, why we can't depend on our own righteousness, basically because we're sinful and unrighteous and deserving of the wrath of God. And then he shifts back to, uh, once he's kind of shown that and given that bad news and made that clear, he goes back to this concept of righteousness. He's going to expand on that and help us to understand it better, uh, why it's how it works uh, what the benefits are, why it's so necessary, etc. And that's the section of Romans that we're in right now. And um, in the next set of verses, we got up through, like I said, up to verse 12 of chapter 5, but in this next section, he's going to lean pretty hard on some things that happened early on in the Bible, Genesis, the first few chapters. And so this morning, before we talk about a uh, uh, great deal about that, I wanted to look back at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and then we'll say some things at the end about how that connects uh, initially with Romans 5, and we'll say some more about it in the weeks ahead. So that's uh, where we are this morning, uh, starting with Genesis, working our way to Romans. That doesn't mean it's going to be like a 12-year sermon. I'm just saying that's the passage we're working with. So, Um, If we had been looking at Genesis up to now, let me give you a little context there for Genesis, but if we had been looking at Genesis, working our way through uh, some things you would have seen by now are, are that at the center of God's purposeful, creative work are two people who are privileged to live in God's beautiful and abundant world, who've been generously commissioned to live in relationship with God and as his images, filling the creation with others who bear God's likeness and then who will go on to manage God's creation on his behalf and for his own glory. We would have also seen how marriage was part of uh, God's generous provision for his creation as this permanent paradigm of how things ought to be, how things ought to work out between God and his people later on between Christ and his church. Then in chapter 3 of Genesis, this uh, beautiful story, this idyllic world, this perfect creation turns suddenly and decidedly very sour. As we see in the first seven verses, a description of how sin came into the world how God's perfect creation was spoiled and as a result in theological, theological language we're looking at this morning the concept of the fall of mankind. The fall of mankind. 
in less technical language, we're looking at why our doors have locks on them, why we have insurance policies, why we have hospitals, why we have police officers, why we have nightmares, why we cry, why we get angry, why we hate, why we're sad, why we go to funerals, why we're afraid, why we're ashamed, why we lie, and why we hide. That's what we're looking at. Before we go any further, let's pray. Father in heaven, we are here at this meeting that you have called for your honor and in keeping with your purposes. All we had to do was get out of bed. You died to make this a reality. So help us to keep that truth in our field of vision. Discipline our wandering hearts, focus our distracted minds still our nervousness. Help us to be here, here and nowhere else. Make us faithful hearers and then brave doers of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In much the same way as Genesis 1 operates, Genesis 3 introduces a new creature, a person, into the developing storyline or plot line of the Bible without any warning or preparation or explanation of its origins. Genesis 1, you have in the beginning God, suddenly God's in the picture and he's everywhere. And Genesis 3, suddenly out of nowhere, the serpent appears. No attempt is made to explain the serpent's history why it is that he can talk, or how he came to be the way he was, in, he was in God's universe. He's simply there in the story. And since God doesn't bother to tell us of his origin, we have to be careful about not speculating too much about it. We'll say some things, but not a great deal. Now, the fact that this serpent is an ordinary beast or creature seems... Uh, Fairly clear, I think, from verse 1, which says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So this is an ordinary creature, and yet as the story unfolds, we'll see that this clearly is not a completely ordinary serpent for several reasons. One, because it's talking. Um, Serpents do not naturally talk. You may have picked up on this. Secondly, because of what it says. 
these are clearly not the thoughts and perspectives of one of God's benign creatures. Not certainly this point in the story. Thirdly, because we know there's more going on uh, as a result of Revelation 12, 7, 9 at the other end of the Bible, which reads like this. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So this language at the other end of the Bible is clearly recalling the Genesis 3 account in what it's saying. In summary then, what we have here is one of God's creatures who has a natural craftiness about him, who's exploited by Satan, enters into it, makes use of him for his own evil purposes. We see a similar such reality later on in the Bible, Luke 22.3, where the description reveals the same kind of activity by Satan, only this time he's not making use of a creature, but a person. Uh, Luke 22.3 reads, uh, When Satan entered, sorry, then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him, that is Jesus, to them. Well, moving on from thinking about who the serpent is, we need to consider the more important matter of what he did, how the woman responded, and what all that led to. Let's consider then in more or less chronological order the events that took place that day in the Garden of Eden. First, if we've seen Satan comes to the woman as a serpent in and through in and through the serpent, which is to say, he comes in disguise. He comes in disguise. Concerning this, Alec Matir writes, Were Satan to manifest himself in his own person, if it's possible for him to do so, he has given the game away before it started. He must hide himself behind some innocuous reality, and a voice out of the beauty and goodness of creation perhaps offers the best hope of success. So in the guise of an ordinary creature... The serpent, which the woman would have likely seen already in the garden, this particular serpent nevertheless proceeds to do a very unserpent-like thing, and he speaks. Now, admittedly, for you and I, this seems quite extraordinary. And we look at this and wonder how it is that woman seems to take this all in stride. And I think that we forget all too easily that this woman, this still sinless, unfallen woman who I might add is living in a world that for us would be the stuff of dreams and fairy tales. It's truly a paradise in which she lives. Even more in this world, she has had God himself. She has had the creator walking around the place. And so in a world like that, with circumstances like that, it might not be nearly as startling for one of God's creatures to start speaking to you. It was that kind of place. A place full of beauty, full of possibilities, where anything might happen. And so it does. And the serpent speaks, and more precisely, he asks a question, a seemingly innocent question. Uh, you know the sort of question I'm talking about. It's the kind of question you've no doubt been asked yourself many times over the years. It's the kind of question uh, you've also probably asked others. It's a question that on the surface is a question, 
but really it's an accusation designed as a question. That's the sort of thing going on here with the serpent. Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? And you see what's going on here. The serpent knows perfectly well what God has said, and he's just twisted his words around. Why? Because he wants to accuse God of being stingy, of being petty, of being a miserly sort of creator who holds out on his creatures. And so he plants the seed of, of that doubt by means of this innocent question. Now, as we know, what God really said was the exact opposite of what the serpent was suggesting. God said they could eat of every tree except one. The serpent's question implies that God has withheld every tree from them and so cast doubt on the goodness and generosity of God. Why? Because appreciating the goodness of God is essential to keeping the law of God. If you hear me say nothing else this morning, hear me say that. Appreciating the goodness of God is essential to keeping the law of God. Let me put it another way. If you don't think that God is good, if you don't think He cares for you, you will not be motivated to listen to what He says or to value and respect what He says. Now, how this works out here is something we're going to come back to in a minute. For now, let's continue on. The serpent asked his question, wanting to create some doubt in the woman's mind at the same time to test the woman out, I think. To see how much she knows about what God has said and how well she knows it. At one level, when the woman responds to the serpent, she shows that she does know, has been listening to what God said. She gets this right, at least initially. She, in fact, corrects the serpent, saying that she and the man could eat from, all, from the trees in the garden except one. And so far, so good. The serpent can see that she does know what God said. She's kept up with that. But the woman doesn't stop there. She goes on to repeat God's rule about not eating of the tree in the midst of the garden, which, again, is fine. But then she adds something to what God has said. She tells the serpent that God had also forbidden them from even touching the fruit of the tree, and that if they even touch this fruit, they will die. Now, it may not seem like much, It may not seem that way, but you need to know that the fact that she adds something here is crucial. Because it indicates while she has some knowledge of God's word, it's an inexact knowledge. It's an approximate knowledge. And I think Satan sees this for the opportunity that it presents. I might just add here, if you think you would have done any better, you're crazy. But he's found out something that he needs to know. He knows he's got something he can work with here. Again, Alec Matir is helpful. He points out that God never forbade them from touching the tree. God never said that. They could have climbed the tree if they wanted to. They could have built a tree house in it if they wanted to. The only thing that were forbidden was eating the fruit. The woman, and the man possibly as well, but the woman for sure has added to what God has said and then treated that addition as if it too were part of God's divine command. She adds a little something, she treats it as if it's part of God's divine command. 
And if you don't know this already, the matter of adding or taking away from God's Word is a very important issue in the Bible. One scholar points out it's no accident that the uh, incautious handling of God's Word that we see here at the beginning of the Bible is countered at the other end of the Bible, Revelation 22.18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. And you hear the echo of this in other places in Scripture. For example, in Paul's admonition to Timothy to handle accurately the Word of God, or in Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisee in Matthew 15, for the way that they were adding to what God had said, treating human traditions as if they were divine doctrines. Again, the Scriptures treat the matter of how we handle God's revelation very seriously. But why? And one commentator sums it up like this. There's nothing truer to the description of Satan than saying that he is a being that is determined to undermine the word of God, and this is the key, to get people to live on any other basis than revelation. Satan is committed to getting people to live on any other basis than revelation. This is precisely what happened, you see, when God's people handled God's word poorly. Adding an idea here, subtracting a truth over there, creating kind of a paraphrased version of the truth that exists in our head, the Bible in our heads that we begin to live by, which becomes increasingly different from the Bible before us. which replaces what God has actually said and which accomplishes Satan's goal for us quite well by getting us to live on the basis of something else besides God's revealed truth. Living according to a corrupted version of that truth. Well, the serpent has asked his question. He discovered the woman's inexact knowledge. Again, don't think you've done this any better. But he sees it for the opportunity that it is and he goes a step further. Now, rather than merely suggesting things about God by asking a question, the serpent boldly declares them, flatly and directly contradicting God. God says, if you eat, you will die. And the serpent says, no, you won't. And he goes on to say some things which, in effect, are saying that the reason God doesn't want the man and the woman to eat the fruit from the one tree is not because God is protecting them but because God is protecting himself and his turf. He suggests here that the reason for God's prohibition of the fruit from the tree is because God really is holding out on his creation. God is selfishly holding back from them, keeping away from them a kind of knowledge that they do not yet possess, but which, if they did, would make them God's rivals. So the serpent's already planted the seed of doubt about God's generosity regarding the trees with this opening question. The woman has exhibited an inexact knowledge of God's will, demonstrated by adding to God's word that she's capable of confusing her own thoughts with God's, that she's willing to go beyond what God has said, to be a little adventurous with the truth. The serpent sees all this, and so he simply presses his advantage here. 
Maybe you see she'll be willing to go even further beyond what God has said. Again, confusing her own ideas and God's, again, placing them on equal footing. And so he tempts her with this notion that there is something else out there that she can and should have. And he does this because he knows that it's a short, short step from feeling that something is there that you can and might and should have to being something that you must have. And must have it. It's a short step from one to the other. And this, says one commentator, is the essence of covetousness and idolatry, the belief that I still need something that I do not now have in order to be happy. This is clearly reflected in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and this is true, it was good for food. That's why God made them. We've been told that. It was a delight to the eyes. And that much is true too. There's no danger there. And to be desired to make one wise. There it is. She was going along great. And then once again, she adds to what is true. She's bought the lie. It's good for food. It's delight to the eyes. And it's to, it's to be desired to make one wise. There's another addition. So she's bought the lie, adopted it as her own, included it alongside what actually was true, placed it on equal footing, and she eats. Don't miss the pattern of sin that we can see so far in what's taking place. She listens to another creature instead of the Creator. She follows her impressions, not God's instructions. She makes fulfillment of something personal her goal and makes that more important than obedience to God. Listens to another creature instead of the Creator, follows her impressions, not God's instructions. Self-fulfillment is more important than obedience to God. Sound familiar? Not a very common theme in our life, in our media. Pick any form of entertainment out there. If I hear one more time in a movie, what does your heart tell you to do? I may throw up in the aisle. What does your heart tell you to do? The patterns and practices engaged in in this scenario are alive and well and they're thriving as the background music, the soundtrack of our culture. They're the unquestioned assumptions that lie behind the decisions of people all around us and behind many of our own decisions. So deeply have we drunk of this poison. Back in the garden, the woman's deceived. She eats. He gave some of the fruit to her husband. The text simply says he was with her. And then he ate as well. Now the phrase with her could mean he was right beside her. Could mean he was near her or sort of around her. But not necessarily right there with her. In other words, the Hebrew allows for some possibilities. However, the fact that we do not hear a single word from Adam during this whole exchange 
coupled with the teaching of 1 Timothy 2.14, where Paul tells us infallibly that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. Not that his sin was any less, it was just different. But the impact of those two realities seems to me to show quite clearly that Adam was with her, but not right there with her. In other words, he would have been with her in the same sense that I'm often with uh, Lisa or my kids when we go to the shopping mall. I don't like to shop a great deal. So if we go someplace to shop for things, usually what happens is I don't go in the store. I kind of hang out and walk around in circles or stare at the ceiling or something like that. And I can imagine if Lisa or one of the kids in the store and they get to talking, one of them says, oh, you're here by yourself. And they might say, no, my dad's with me, and, which means I'm somewhere in the area circling waiting for us to please leave the store. So I'm with her, but I'm not right with her. I think something like that's happening here. So the woman's deceived and eats. She then gives fruit to the man who does not have the luxury of claiming that he was deceived. Simply goes along with his wife and imitates her action there. Well, now that both the man and the woman have sinned, now that they've been tried and found wanting, now that they have been, both been shown to be uh, incapable of living under the conditions of the garden, it's at that point, not before, but at that point that both of their eyes were opened. Interestingly, Eve's eyes were not opened immediately, not till Adam was right there with her. Then both their eyes were opened. Begin to see the consequences of their sin and rebellion, the consequences whose painful seriousness will only become apparent over a period of time. Indeed, the rest of the book of Genesis and the whole Bible and history itself is the outworking, the re- recorded outworking of this event, as well as every other history book ever written. So let's think about some of these consequences from this first sin, both for the man and the woman then beyond them for all humanity, including you and me. Uh, As far as a man and woman are concerned, the two main consequences they experienced as a result of the rebellion were, one, they did gain knowledge that they did not have before. They certainly did. And secondly, they died. Let's look at the so-called gains and new knowledge that resulted from their actions. One thing they knew after they sinned, which they did not know before, was that they were naked. They didn't suddenly become naked, of course, but they did suddenly become conscious of their nakedness. They felt exposed. They felt vulnerable. What was once natural became a point of embarrassment and shame for them. And while the connection between eating a forbidden fruit and the feeling of shame is not absolutely clear, it most likely has something to do with the fact that they were suddenly aware that they'd done something wrong and it made them fearful and scared made them want to hide. And so feeling naked and wanting to physically cover themselves up was most likely an external expression of the inward burden of sin and a desire to cover that up. However, it seems to me also that the awareness of their nakedness, as real and as painful as that may have been for them, was possibly an indicator that they do not at this point see their sin rightly. They're only seeing it in personal terms. How it was affecting them individually. They're not actually thinking at this point how any of this has affected God.
They do not seem to see it as something which grieved God, nor do they seem to be conscious of the damage they've caused. As one commentator puts it, their sin does not drive them back to God, but to a self-atoning, self-protecting stance. Indeed, it seems to drive them away from God and into themselves. So one thing that they knew after they ate the fruit was that they're naked. Another kind of knowledge they gained, regrettably, was an experiential knowledge of sin. From the beginning, from the time that God first told them that they could eat and what they couldn't eat, from that point, the man and woman knew something about good and evil. If there's a line and the rule is don't cross the line, if there's a fruit, it says don't eat the fruit. At that point, you know something about good and evil. You don't know evil in an experiential way, but you know something about it at that point. With regard to good, they were to know that. They were to know good in an experiential way and evil in a theoretical way. They knew that the consequences of eating the forbidden fruit would be death, even though they wouldn't possibly have been able to conceive you know, precisely what that would have been. And even though they'd never seen death, they could infer that it was not a good thing. So again, they were to know good in an experiential way. They were to know evil in a theoretical way. That's how it was supposed to be. However, as a consequence of their sin, that's turned around completely. They suddenly had an experiential knowledge of sin that they were never meant to have. And on the other side of the equation, doing good became from them at that point merely theoretical. There's a complete reversal. And a terrible knowledge is the experiential knowledge of sin and evil. It's a terrible knowledge. It's like the knowledge gained by a child whose mother says, don't go near that fire because if you do, you'll get hurt. You'll catch fire and be burned. But the child goes on in disobedience, falls into the fire and spends the next three days dying in agony. Has the child learned something that she would not have known experientially if she would listened to the knowledge given her by her mother? Absolutely. But what terrible, horrible, awful knowledge it is. What senseless, useless knowledge it is. But they've got that now. The third sort of knowledge they gained was the knowledge of good and evil, not as rule keepers, but as rule makers. The woman showed by her actions that she was not content to let God be the only one to define what was good and what is evil, and the man too, really. She wanted the ability to do that for herself. And so she and the man with her attempted to do that very thing. They took the fruit and they ate it. They wanted the right, you see. They wanted the right to determine for themselves what was best. And that's a new kind of knowledge, to be a rule maker. But it's a kind they weren't meant to have or to assume for themselves. So one of the consequences for the men and women was that they did gain new knowledge. Knowledge they were naked, experiential knowledge of sin and evil, knowing good and evil through a foolish attempt to challenge God's exclusive right to be the one who determines what is good and evil. And all that knowledge was terrible. And it was tragic. The other and more significant consequence of their sin... Assurances of the serpent notwithstanding was that they did in fact die. That's the heinous irony of the serpent's lie. 
The serpent said that they would not die if they ate from the tree. But then he went on in the very next breath to describe their death, although they didn't see it yet. He said, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Have you just seen the only way they could have the kind of knowledge of good and evil that the serpent was describing there was by sinning against God, that is, by taking an action that would render them spiritually dead and unresponsive to God. So the serpent is saying, on the one hand, you'll not die, but you'll gain this knowledge that only spiritually dead people can have. So they did die from the moment they sinned against God. They died spiritually. They were dead in their trespasses and sins, as Paul describes the human situation in Romans 5 and Ephesians 2. And this immediate spiritual death, separation from God, set in motion the process of decay and degeneration that would result in their physical death. And eventually, unless otherwise dealt with, result in their eternal death. Spiritual death, set in the process of physical death, results in eternal death. Three deaths. Those are some of the consequences of the first sin for the man and the woman. However, the consequences sadly did not stop with them. As Romans 5, 12 to 21 make painfully clear what Adam did, he did as the representative for all humanity. His actions and choices affected us all. To use the language of theologians, Adam was the federal representative for the human race. Romans 5, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verses 18 and 19, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul makes it quite clear in these verses that the one trespass led to condemnation for all men. When Adam fell, we fell with him. When he died spiritually, that death became our inheritance, our birthright. We are guilty in him. To be sure, to that guilt, we add our own sinful thoughts and deeds. But those only confirm the fact that we are born from the womb with a heart that's wicked and oriented away from God, that is spiritually unresponsive to him as unresponsive as a corpse. Now thankfully, the same chapter of Romans, which looks back upon and interprets for us the significance of the events of Genesis 3 and delivers to us such unrelentingly bad news, that same chapter is the source of the greatest news of all. The same principle by which we were condemned with Adam when he fell in the garden is the principle by which we are saved in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is also the representative for us. Romans, Paul says in Romans 5, 18, 19 again, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, by the one man's obedience the many be made righteous. In Jesus, who is also referred to in the Scriptures as the last Adam, 
The questions raised by the fall of mankind as to whether we'll ever be able to live in God's world under the conditions which God has set for living here. In Jesus, those questions are answered in the affirmative. He is the one who knows his Father's word, who does not at all doubt God's wisdom or goodness or resist evil. If you were to turn to Luke 4, you see there the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. You ever wonder what that's about? Why is that story there? What's going on? After 40 days of fasting, being tempted by the devil, there's this further final attempt by Satan to trip him up. The first Adam failed this test. What will happen with Jesus? Well, you know the story. Jesus is tempted by the very same Satan that tripped up the man and woman at the beginning. But things don't go so well for Satan this time. Jesus, the last Adam, when he is tempted, shows his complete reliance on the Father and his word. And as a result, the tempter fails. Put another way, Jesus passes the test that Adam failed. And so merits by his active obedience and by his death on the cross, the righteousness which he then turns around and credits to his people, reversing the fall and its effects and opening the way for his people, securing for them a permanent home, a new paradise from which they will never be cast out. That's the connection between Genesis 3 and Romans 5. We'll have more to say that in the next few weeks. Let's pray together. Father, in your word, you're always speaking to us. And then sometimes, in that very same moment, you are speaking for us. In that you are telling us things that we've come to see and understand and now embrace and proclaim and profess and add our echoing voice to yours on that same truth. These verses have both of those things going on, Father, and we thank you for that. And help us, Father, then, knowing these truths, knowing the effect of what happened in the garden and how that affected all of humanity and how your provision for that is in the Lord Jesus. Father, would you use that knowledge to motivate us to thankfulness, to a life of illustrated thankfulness, and to conversations, to relationships with people that you've already brought into our life and across our path who have not yet seen these things, do not yet know these things or even believe them. Father, would you use us as your megaphone to tell them these things that are true, that affect them whether they know it or not. 
Help us to be your instruments of this good news that can surely deliver them as it has delivered us from the bad news that encompasses us all. We thank you for this privilege and this opportunity. Please use us in this endeavor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now take up a collection for those who want to support the work of this church and ministries through this church.